At dawn on May 10, 1940, the armies of Nazi Germany bolted from behind the borders of their country to begin a march of conquest across Western Europe. Spearheaded by a formidable armada of tanks and closely supported by the most powerful fleet of attack aircraft ever assembled, they set out to accomplish what German armies had failed to achieve in the First World War a generation earlier, to crush France and humble Britain. Though braced for the attack, Allied defenses, outmatched, outmaneuvered, and overwhelmed, quickly crumbled under the onslaught. In less than three weeks, Adolf Hitler, the emotionally charged, ideologically driven German dictator, achieved the most extraordinary military triumph of modern times. Not only was the French army, previously deemed the most indomitable fighting machine in the world, on the verge of collapse, but the British Expeditionary Force, which had been sent across the English Channel to help stop the Germans, was trapped against the sea at Dunkirk on the northwest coast of France. Disaster loomed for the forces resisting the Nazi menace. Hitler's conquests had been relentless. Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Denmark, Holland, and Luxembourg had already fallen to him. Most of Belgium had been overrun, and its surrender was imminent. Norway was about to succumb as well, and even the proud French were heading for a humiliating capitulation. In London, senior government officials and top military officers were astounded by the rapidity and magnitude of the German rampage across northern France, and by the peril suddenly and without warning facing the British Expeditionary Force. The BEF comprised almost all of Britain's combat-ready troops, cadre, and experienced officers. The realization that it was trapped with its back to the sea and had little hope of breaking out was staggering. The war had just begun, but Britain was about to be left without an army. It was grimly accepted that virtually all of the army's heavy equipment, which had accompanied the BEF to France, was irretrievably lost. But plans were hastily patched together to try to save some of the troops. Ships and boats were assembled to shuttle across the English Channel to bring as many as possible back to England from Dunkirk. But German bombers had been blasting the city's port facilities for days, rendering them well-nigh useless, and onrushing German ground forces were just a few miles from the city. Not even the most optimistic of British leaders believed the evacuation could be successful. At best, it was thought, a comparatively small number of men, maybe 30,000 out of ten times that number, could be lifted off before the German trap snapped closed. Some senior British officers were convinced that practically none of the men would get away. A national day of prayer for the troops across the Channel was ordained in Britain, prompting some of them who learned of it to conclude that they were already written off as doomed. Government aides advised that the British public, which had been shielded from the details by censorship, should be apprised of the situation, so that when the worst finally occurred, it would not come as too devastating a shock. A German invasion of Britain was believed to be in the making, and those who already knew of the BEF's plight feared that the country might be left minus the wherewithal to repel it. Winston Churchill, newly named Prime Minister, and scorned by a number of the senior figures in London as a political dilettante, the wrong man for the job, warned the House of Commons to brace itself for hard and heavy tidings. Some thought those tidings would be too hard and heavy to bear. Junior Government Minister Harold Nicholson and his wife, writer Vita Sackville-West, 
contemplated suicide. Though not normally given to morbid sentiments, Senior Foreign Office Official Sir Alexander Cudigan was disheartened enough to confide in his diary, I should count it a privilege to be dead if Hitler rules England.